This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Good evening. Welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also stream us on channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm with Onel Nzinti, Fusane Matebula, and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories. The International Arbitration Court urged to make Africa's participation in its dispute resolution duty attractive. Thousands of children in Cameroon may never again have education as they are caught in the web of fighting between armed separatists and government troops. In economics, Ethiopia appointed a new central bank governor in a move that follows major economic reforms. And in sport, Japan register a historic win at the 2018 FIFA World Cup. Onelintzinzi has the news. Thank you, Spoo. At least 39 people have been killed execution style and more than 1,000 fled their homes as armed groups wreck havoc in northern Mozambique. Local activists say more than 400 homes have been burnt down in the past two weeks. Human Rights Watch claims to have seen 164 burnt houses and scores of torched cattle. Villagers say they suspect members of an armed militant group known locally as both al Swinawa Jamas and Al-Shabaab. The wave of violence in Cabo Delgado province began in October 2017. Suspected armed Islamists attacked police stations. Following the attacks, authorities closed seven mosques and detained more than 300 people without charges, including religious leaders and foreigners suspected of having links to the armed attacks. The army says it has apprehended more than 200 men suspected of having links to the armed Islamist group, but villagers say some who were shot and arrested by the army are innocent. Human Rights Watch has appealed to armed groups to stop attacking villages and executing people and to Mozambican authorities to ensure that deployed security forces respect basic human rights. There has been fierce fighting in Yemen against Houthi rebels for control of a Hodeida airport. Pro-government military forces supported by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates entered Hodeida airport today, a key advance in their week-long offensive to dislodge rebel fighters from the vital Red Sea port. The assault launched last week has alarmed aid groups which rely on the ports to, delivery, the, to deliver the bulk rather, of aid they send to the impoverished, war-ravaged country. The BBC's Paul Adams has more. The battle for Hodeida Airport has raged for several days and its capture by pro-government forces has already been announced more than once. But an officer with one of the pro-government militias speaking from the terminal building said the airport was now in their hands. At the same time, aid workers based in Hodeida itself say the fighting appears to be getting closer. They say people are trapped in their homes and running out of food. The Saudi-led coalition directing this assault says it's doing everything in its power to avoid making the humanitarian situation worse. As fighting moves closer to built-up areas, this will be a major challenge. 
The International Arbitration Court has been urged to make Africa's participation in its dispute resolution duty more attractive to the young people. The International Arbitration Court opened proceedings with a concern for the absence of young Africans on its panel. The court noted that Africa is underrepresented and is seeking young Africans to join in on the job of peaceful resolution of dispute resolution for greater and better impact. At least, at, two, at least 257 illegal baby factories have reportedly been uncovered in the Imo state of Nigeria. This is the country moves to eradicate illegal orphanages. The report quoted special assistance to the Imo state governor on NGOs and allied matters, Simeon Nyulu, as saying that only 15 of the 272 social homes in the state were legal. Reports indicated earlier this month that the first network of baby factories in Nigeria were identified in 2008. And lastly, there is a rise in fear that thousands of children in Cameroon may never again have education as they are caught in the web of fighting between armed separatists and government troops. Schools in the country continue to be torched in wounds inflicted on some as they defy calls on them not to go to school. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. The United Nations estimates that more than a hundred thousand English-speaking Cameroonians, a majority of them children of school-going age, have fled the violence in the English-speaking regions to safer localities including bushes. Tens of thousands have crossed over to Nigeria and may never ever have education again. Channel African News, I'm Oni This is Africa Digest. Thanks, Onele. Now, the International Arbitration Court has been urged to make Africa's participation in its dispute resolution duty attractive. The court noted that Africa is underrepresented and is seeking young Africans to join in on the job of a peaceful resolution of dispute resolution for greater and better impact. Addressing the third African Regional Conference of the ICC in Lagos in Nigeria, the president of the court, Alexis Moreau, says the percentage of Africans on its panel is not encouraging. Collins Atohengbe reports. The International Arbitration Court opened proceedings with a concern for the absence of young Africans on its panel and would want that to change for the better with the entrance of more Africans in their prime to be trained and given the opportunity to handle emerging issues from international trade dispute locally and then mature into the international scene where more sophisticated cases are handled. The president of the International Arbitration Court, Alexis Moray, says the world body's earnest desire is to have young Africans fill the continent's quota on its dispute resolution mechanism. In 2017, less than 2% of the total population of arbitrators appointed or confirmed by the court came from Sub-Saharan Africa. This is not a good statistic. Professor Gabriel Olawoyi, chairman of the Nigerian chapter of the International Criminal Court on Dispute Resolution, says for the dream of the International Arbitration Court to materialize, Every African nation must endeavor to create an enabling environment where the court itself makes Africans sit on its panel 
attractive. For arbitration to sustain a barren viability in Africa, each country on the continent must be prepared to create a welcome and enabling environment. Speaking on behalf of the Nigerian government, the Special Assistant to the President on Industry, Trade and Investment, Jumoke Oduwole, says Nigeria has made reforms in the area of contract and it has started with the creation of an enabling environment that will make the world's trade arbitration court get the required support in Nigeria. In the last 18 months, the Presidential Enabling Business Environment Council, which is chaired by the Vice President, has delivered impactful reforms, particularly also in the area of enforcement of contracts. We're in the middle of passing the camera. The Senate has already passed it. And we also hope to pass an omnibus bill later this year. So it's a robust intervention with all key stakeholders forced to deliver whatever is needed to make sure that you have the necessary support as the arbitration community in Nigeria. For the role of Africa in the dispensation of justice through amicable resolution of differences in trade and commerce to be realized, there is the urgent need to have Africans, particularly the younger generation, to take interest in the work of arbitration and then grow from there into the international stage after a successful outing at the local level. The chairman of the conference organizing committee, Funke Adekoya, says, these have been incorporated into the plan for Africa's interest on the long run. One of the things that the ICC has decided is that where they have sole arbitrator appointments and they have young arbitrators with domestic arbitration experience, sitting as an arbitrator in a domestic arbitration, they will use that ladder to propel them on the international scene. The conference, which is the third in the series, is to draw attention to peaceful and acceptable resolution of disputes among trading partners and nations of the world through the dispute resolution mechanism which the ICC provides. Over 350 arbitration experts from across the world are in attendance at the conference which will deliberate on the viability of international arbitration in Africa. The Trade Dispute Resolution Court is the highest peace-making organ between trading partners in commercial matters. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato Ingwe for Channel Africa News. The Zimbabwean election body has won elections this year are now set and in no way would they be stopped or postponed. During the first media consultative meeting by Zimbabwe Electoral Commission in the capital on Monday, Chairperson of the Commission, Justice Priscilla Chikumba, warned the opposition to understand the law regarding the voters' role. Lately, the main opposition movement for democratic change, or MDCT, has been threatening to disrupt or boycott elections is that if ZEC refuses to implement the law and avail the voters' role on time ahead of the polls. More from our correspondent Simon Machema reports from Harare. As the elections date in Zimbabwe draw closer, the tipping point has now become the vote-rigging shenanigans in the voters' role. For the first time since 1980, Zimbabwe Electoral Commission's credibility is being put to test regarding how the voters' role will be distributed to all political parties contesting this year. It's the first time Zimbabwe is using the biometric voters' role where body features such as fingerprints will be used to identify voters. According to ZEC, at least 110 political parties are registered in Zimbabwe, but only 25 will be contesting various positions from the presidency, legislature, and local councils. 
However, Zek is adamant the electoral laws have been followed and there will be no need for cancellation of the elections based on failure to abide by the laws. Zek Chairperson Justice Priscilla Chigumba explained. If you see any anomalies in it, whatever the anomalies are, whatever legal recourse that they have will not stop the election. I want that to be very clear and that's the law. Nothing stops an election. If there are any anomalies in that voters' role, what is at candidates can avail themselves to any anomalies to possibly challenge the outcome of the election. But whatever legal recourse is at hand cannot stop the election. And I think the Chief Justice was quite clear in his interpretation of the law. Nothing stops an election after the proclamation of the election date. What candidates can do for whatever reason and whatever their opinions and views are is actually use anything that they come up with to challenge the outcome of the election. So anyone is at liberty to look at our product, analyze it, formulate an opinion and utilize legal remedies. The meeting on Monday came following a weekend meeting where Zek announced the, the release of the voters' roll, which opposition parties rubbished as the voters' roll could not be analyzed. However, Justice Chigumba explained why the voters' roll is taking time to produce and why the soft copy is yet to be availed. And ordinarily, after payment, uh, it should take 48 hours. But having said that, I need to qualify that and say this 48-hour period will only apply after we have provided copies to all successfully nominated candidates. So at the moment, we're running copies for the successfully nominated candidates. On the day that we gazette the names of the successfully nominated candidate, we should actually be ready to provide each and every candidate with a copy of the voters' roll. If it's councillors, if there are 3,000 councillors, on the day of the gazetting, each councillor should get an e-copy at our expense. If it's members of parliament each, so you can get an idea of the numbers of copies that we're currently running. After the gazetting and having provided all of our candidates with those copies, then the 48-hour rule should actually kick in ordinarily, barring unforeseen things such as uh, lack of zesa in our provinces. But we do print these voters' roll here at head office. So I think if you request a voter's role at a provincial office, you should factor in the fact that the voter's role has to be transmitted. From year 2000, when the main opposition MDC started contesting elections and putting the ruling ZANU-PF's gripped power to test, allegations of vote rigging have been made with little success. This year, the former president Robert Mugabe is no longer on the ballot paper, but still the same allegations are being made considering the voters' role has been the center of contestation in the country. Justice Chigumba explained the new electoral laws that guide Zek's work in electoral management. We would also like to emphasize that we don't have a mandate to investigate, arrest and prosecute those who flout electoral rules and regulations. It is important to note that in electoral conflict management, the Zimbabwe Human Rights Commission and the Zimbabwe Republic Police play critical roles because those are the two commissions that actually have an investigative mandate. The police commissioner general, uh, in terms of the law, must set up special police units to investigate cases of politically motivated violence and intimidation arising from an election and I'm reliably informed that these special police units are already in place. Um, if after an investigation the special liaison officer of the Zimbabwe Human Rights Commission is satisfied that an incident of violence or intimidation did take place, 
they can warn the candidate that he or she may be prosecuted and prohibited from campaigning in the election where violence or intimidation was perpetrated by a candidate or his or her election agent. In Arari, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. This is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. Your help and apathy. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholihlahla Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the tree of This is Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is 17.18 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. As we continue to give you news from an African perspective, you can tweet us. We are on Channel Africa 1. That's Channel Africa Numerical 1. If you want to tweet us, you can also send us your emails at info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. My name is Spumelele Sondi. I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, wage talks between South Africa's Utility ASCOM and unions have resumed. Workers uh, Unions, the National Union of Mine Workers, that's NUM, and National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, and Solidarity are taking part in these negotiations. The country suffered power outages because of what ASCOM said was illegal, an illegal protest by NUM and NUMSA last week. 
However, no further significant outages were reported yesterday. The unions have been protesting against ESCOM's announcement that it should not grant any pay increase this year. Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon said late on Friday that the utility would offer an increase. To talk to us more on this, we now joined on the line by South African economist Dr. Azar Jamin. Hello and thank you very much for joining us. Good evening. Good evening to your listeners. Um, and is it normal for the uh, for public enterprises minister to enter a conversation like this and, and pretty much give an order of what must happen? Well, it's not normal, but I think it is a crisis situation for the country's economy as a whole. And uh, that is why the uh, minister uh, saw fit to intervene, because this... Uh, crisis could have erupted into having major implications for the economy and ultimately also this would have had uh, implications for the political situation in the country given that uh, we're going to have a general election uh, sometime within the next 10 months. Mm. Um, and uh, they had initially asked that and said that they can't afford any increase at all. Um, so where can the money come from now? Well, um, unfortunately, this is the Minister of Public Enterprises himself has to try and source the money. ESCOM itself clearly uh, finds it difficult to afford it, but in the ultimate, in the ultimate resort, it's the, um, it's the government that can still help to bail out ESCOM. The problem is people are very scared of that. The ratings agencies have alerted uh, Uh, one to the danger of these contingent liabilities going out of control and increasing the national debt. Uh, And that is uh, obviously in anticipation of such situation why the country's credit rating uh, has been downgraded to junk status by two out of the three major credit rating agencies. Um, Now, the agreement for the government to step in here means the government is prepared to put up some of the money to help... uh, Uh, bail out uh, ESCOM from this situation. Having said that, if you think about it, in the broader scheme of things, uh, it's not a huge amount of money uh, relative to the total government debt. So the the government probably found that it was uh, probably um, expeditious to uh, put up, say, a billion rand or so, which the additional wage increase will cost, uh, relative to uh, public debt of 1.6 trillion uh, of uh, 2.2 uh, trillion uh, rand. Mm. Uh, how much do these power outages that we started seeing last week uh, costing the country? Yes, I'm often asked that. I think it's very difficult to actually give a, uh, an unequivocal answer to that. I think uh, the uh, the impact on the economy uh, can be overstated because businesses do often uh, make up for lost production due to outages by working extra hours uh, when electricity is on. Uh, There are, of course, some businesses that lose out permanently, such as restaurants, for example. Uh, There are other instances where that is the case. But relatively speaking, I don't think one should overstate the impact. Uh, I keep thinking of 2008, the last time we had major outages in the country, and uh, the country's economic growth rate uh, was over 3% that year, uh, which is far higher than the kind of growth that 
we've been experiencing in recent years. So clearly, there are other factors at play uh, over and above whether you have outages that determine the growth of the economy. Uh, that sort of answers my next question because um, I was going to say let's compare to other countries that um, uh, that have um, outages a lot more often, for example, um, and, and still manage to um, uh, grow faster than South Africa, other African countries, mm. that is. Um, and let's say the Africa's biggest economy, Nigeria, experiences power outages almost on a daily. Uh, that is, that's correct. It's just that the economy has adjusted to that. It's just in South Africa's case, we're not we're used to continuous flow of electricity, and therefore, when there is an outage, it becomes more disruptive. But as we found in 2008, uh, businesses, consumers tended to adapt. Uh, and the ironies, for example, with consumers, if at night at peak hour they consume less electricity, then when their electricity bill arrives at the end of the month, it's lower than would normally be the case, and they have a little more money, ironically, uh, uh, left over to spend on other goods and services. And so the ultimate impact on, the, uh, on their consumption may be quite small. Um, uh, Dr. Jamin, uh, could the unions have settled for that 0%? Uh, well, <laughs> I suppose they could have. Uh, there's nothing to stop them. Uh, you know, in the normal scheme of things with a lot of small businesses, when right. they're threatened with uh, uh, bankruptcy, uh, you know, the workers are only too glad to keep their jobs and to agree to no pay rise whatsoever. But uh, those businesses are normally not unionized. It's just that it's the objective of the uh, trade union to try and... Uh, you know, if you're a union shop steward, uh, your objective is to try and get the best deal possible for your workers. And uh, that means you find there's no way that you can accept a zero pay rise, despite the fact that in ESCOM's case, we know that the average uh, salary that uh, ESCOM workers earn is close to 700,000 rand a year, which is way above what uh, the average salary in most other businesses might be. Mm. Um, uh, uh, that 700,000 rand, of course, that would include um, some of the lowest paid workers at ASCOM, right? That it includes the, some of the lowest and includes uh, some of the higher paid. But as an average, 700,000 rand a year is, uh, is not... Uh, mm, uh, it is money. quite a lot of money. As an average, yes. It's way above uh, the minimum wage that uh, even some of the more militant unions are demanding of 12,500 rand a month, which is equivalent to uh, 140,000 rand a year. Now, ESCOM has been able to receive um, uh, quite a few in- increases um, at, uh, in the past. They've been able to receive um, bailouts, as other um, state-owned enterprises have in the past as well. But can ESCOM get out of the long-term slump that it's been in? You know, this is a question that a lot of people are questioning at the, uh, or posing at the moment. And uh, it's uh, really, it's an enormous question that I can't answer instantaneously because there are those who argue that the easiest way of getting out of the slump is to privatize ESCOM and, uh, to, or to break it up into component parts, transmission, distribution, and generation, and uh, either sell off some or not. Uh, that is the one uh, uh, easier solution. And we don't also know whether the structure of ESCOM in terms of the type of uh, uh, generation, whether it be 
from coal or uh, nuclear or uh, renewable uh, could provide, you know, if we were to change those ratios, whether that could uh, see a a solution. The fact is that ESCOM has been subjected to massive what is known as state capture, you know, corruption by officials who have siphoned off uh, through procurement deals that have paid massive premiums on what has been necessary to pay in order to uh, actually help, uh, uh, in order to make money for themselves. Hmm. And it's and that is costing them uh, dearly. I mean, ESCOM was the pride and joy of the South African economy uh, yeah. during the apartheid era. It was the big pride of the nationalist government, and it's just been reduced to a, uh, to a laughing stock uh, since then. Um, why is there such resistance to part privatization? Uh, it's ideological, basically, and uh, it stems from the uh, a large section of South African society believes that uh, um, uh, private sector is bad and public anything driven by the that government should bail out everything. It's socialism versus capitalism, and there is this uh, what is known as the P word that is uh, you dare not mention in uh, government. Uh, 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 corridors and that's privatization. It is just seen as ideologically uh, non-acceptable. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's Dr. Azat Jameen, Chief Economist at Econometrics. This is Africa Digest. It is now time for news headlines. Here's on Elensinti. There has been fierce fighting in Yemen against Houthi rebels for control of Hodeida airport. At least 39 people have been killed execution style and more than 1,000 have fled their homes as armed groups wreak havoc in northern Mozambique. And the International Arbitration Court has urged has been urged rather to make Africa's participation in its dispute resolution duty more attractive to the young people. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinzi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Your time is 17.31 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Please tweet us your views. We are on Channel Africa 1 that is Channel Africa 1 on Twitter or send us your emails. Uh, you can send them to info at channelafrica.co.za info at channelafrica.co.za We are also on WhatsApp. It's plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. That is the South African 
African code plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. Now, what role have lawyers played in changing or safeguarding democratic society or democratic governmental structures? A new project set to answer that question is currently underway. A website that features Africa's top legal minds and focuses on how they contribute to creating stable political systems and robust economies is for the first time highlighting the core of talent working on the continent. According to the founders of Africa Legal, there is so much happening in African legal services. Much of it's groundbreaking, but nothing is ever featured in international media. One of the founders, Scott Cowan, joins us on the line from the United Kingdom to talk more about this. Helen, thank you very much for joining us, Scott. Good evening to you. Um, what made you decide to start this project? Oh, it's um, having, having worked in the legal and financial recruitment internationally for, for years, I found something very unique about the countries I visited across the African continent. Um, the appetite to learn for professionals to better themselves and achieve more than their counterparts was consistent. And there was a huge amount of talent that could achieve more if their stories were told, as you mentioned earlier, if, if they could find a new job or they could gain access to professional training. There, there was so, so much happening. Serena in the African legal services. Much of it is groundbreaking, but nothing is ever featured in the international media. Um, Africa legal is one way of ensuring these stories find a global audience and that the people behind them are recognized. And Wendy uh, Bampton, my co-founder, and I received an email last year, uh, last week, sorry, uh, just from Kenya. And the quote was simple, I commend you both for taking time to reintroduce Africa to the rest of the world. Africa Legal is part of the African Professional Services Group and is the first platform that, that we've, we've launched. Mm. Um, and uh, so how will the project work? It's a website, is it? Yes, it is, yes. Um, it's, uh, it's very easy um, and uh, it basically combines a pan-African approach, Selena, where we have latest news, jobs and an e-learning. And uh, so any lawyer or person working in the um, in any legal structure in whichever African country can be a part of it? Yes, of course you can. Um, and I mean, one of the things that we were looking at is, uh, is uh, you know, one of the things we're looking at is a shortage of legal professionals in some parts of Africa. Um, you know, it isn't always very easy for people to move in different countries of different qualifications and processes. And outside of these personal networks, there's been little or no visibility of jobs. Africa Legal aims to create the visibility and make it easier for lawyers and in-house counsel and other legal support business staff. There's also, in my view, a misconception that being a lawyer in the largest firms is the only measure of success. There are other types of legal careers. For example, legal project management and technology-led roles are and will continue to increase in prominence across the continent. Lawyers and business service staff with skills in these areas will find it easier to move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, as will those who keep up to date with the international cross-border transactions. Right. Um, so if, let's say, I'm a lawyer and I want to be a part of this, what do I do? Um, do I just go on? Do I register? Do I need to contact you? What happens? 
It's very simple. You just need to go to www.africa-legal.com or simply, Serena, put Africa Legal into your mobile or desktop browser and you should be on page one. (laughs) Um, And on page one, what steps do I need to take? You just basically follow the uh, the steps, uh, click and register, and then you can browse and take the the courses that we put on there as well. Mm. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. All right, so Scott Cohen is co-founder of Africa Legal there. Joining us on the line, it's a new project that aims to document some of what's happening in Africa's legal fraternities. And he says if you want to be a part of this uh, project, you just need to go to the Africa Legal website and follow the steps there. And you should be able to document or add your view there. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.36 Central African time right here on Africa Digest. The Democratic Republic of Congo declared an Ebola outbreak in the northeast of the country on May 8. This was the ninth attack in the country. Part of the response came from the African Union through its newly established Center for Disease Control. The director of the Africa Center for Disease Control has given an update on the Ebola outbreak in the DRC. This was at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Since the declaration of the Ebola outbreak in the DRC, out of the 62 cases reported, there have been 28 deaths. The African Center for Disease Control, based in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, says now the situation can be termed as stable. Dr. John Nkengason is the director for the Africa CDC. Ebola virus outbreak depends on just one case. So one case can very quickly become uh, 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 spread very quickly there. So, but we are very uh, we are pleased with where we are with respect to this, uh, the, the, the new cases that we are receiving uh, every, um, uh, every every week or every day. We currently have uh, boots on the ground. A lot of Africa CDC staff are in the field. And- Dr. Nkengason says the Africa Center for Disease Control had a rapid response by sending 27 medical experts to assist the Democratic Republic of Congo government to tackle the challenge. However, he says the operations were hindered by a number of challenges, as he explains. The infections are occurring in a remote area in uh, Bikoro, Ipoko and, and other areas that are extremely difficult to uh, access. Most of them, you don't have roads to, to get there, and even if you have roads, the roads are not uh, really accessible. So you have to fly from Kinshasa to Mbandaka by a small UN uh, 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 plane, and that is not done regularly. There's no commercial flight between Kinshasa and Mbandaka. And then you take an helicopter to Bikoro and Ipoko, and it can only take a very limited number of people. So that can actually tell you that you may have your epidemiologists and infection control experts, but you can't actually deploy them because of that challenge, including logistics there. This is the ninth Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Dr. John says the African Center for Disease Control cannot rule it out as the last. The next time we have the tenth outbreak, which will definitely happen, uh, the National Public Health Institute of that country should be able to respond to it in a timely fashion. We cannot be running into a country each time and responding and going out. 
Nothing tells us that when this outbreak is over in two months, that another outbreak will not occur in Lumumbashi, and then what do we do? We rush back and start doing that. So I think we really need to, uh, to, to do that. Uh, support member states in that. The African Union through the Africa CDC is working to expand knowledge database available regarding the Ebola virus disease and response efforts so that people can stay safe. Colette Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Thousands of children in Cameroon may never again have education as they are caught in the web of fighting between armed separatists and government troops. Some of their schools continue to be torched and wounds inflicted on some just because they defy calls on them not to go to school. Mokikinzeka reports from Yawunde where some of the children have escaped for safety. It is a bright Tuesday morning with child hawkers proposing goods to drivers and passers-by on congested streets of Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé. The number of hawkers is increasing with many of them saying they are from Cameroon's two English-speaking northwest and southwest regions. Among them is 16-year-old Delphine Tabe. She says she has been a hawker for more than a year since she fled from her village in the BLM, an administrative unit on Cameroon's southwest region. I am selling boiled granite to have money and help my mother who is in the hospital. She was beaten by Cameroonian gendarmes after a military man was killed in our village. My mother almost died. Our schools were burned and students were beaten. Since that day in May 2017, we escaped to Yaoundé and we do not have money to go to school. Delphine says her chances of becoming a teacher are gradually being shattered as she has got no one to help sponsor her. Instead, she has to look for money to help her sick mother. At this kitchen in the house where Delphine lives in Yaoundé, food is being prepared for 32 people. Emmanuel Nimbo, a 52-year-old government worker from Lebelem, working in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé, says a year ago he had only five mouths to feed. The others escaped from their villages and pleaded for him to feed and shelter them. Emmanuel says he is praying for the crisis to stop because many have been coming and he can no longer help. We are stretching an olive hand of peace. Those in the bush should give a chance. Come back home to their homes so that they could meet their mothers, their fathers, brothers and sisters. The United Nations estimates that more than 100,000 English-speaking Cameroonians, a majority of them children of school-going age, have fled the violence in the English-speaking regions to safer localities including bushes. Tens of thousands have crossed over to Nigeria and may never ever have education again. Last week, Benjamin Itoye, an elite from the English-speaking southwest region, visited some teachers, students and villagers who said they were beaten for refusing to obey calls by armed separatists on them not to go to school. He says the situation is getting preoccupying as the days go by. I will appeal to our brothers who are involved in all this to 
love, love their brothers because if you love your brother, you will not kill him or even abuse him. We sympathize with people who have been victims of the crisis, who have received gunshots and many wounds. We sympathize at the same time with those who are already dead, who have been killed. Cameroon reports that several dozen schools have been touched, teachers kidnapped and some killed while others are missing and so many students can no longer go to school for fear of the unknown. J'en appelle donc à la collaboration habituelle des populations sur laquelle nous comptons tant il est vrai que nous n'allons pas gagner. Deben Chofo, governor of the northwest region of Cameroon, says without the collaboration of the population, Cameroon cannot win the war against armed groups that are holding entire communities hostage. He says they have taken enough security measures to stop armed groups whose exactions have forced many villages and schools to be completely deserted because they are compromising the future of just everyone. Schools have been closed in the English-speaking northwest and southwest areas of Cameroon since November 2016, when lawyers and teachers called for a strike to stop what they believe is the overuse of the French language. Separatists took over and were asking for the independence of the English-speaking from the French-speaking regions. Cameroon government reacted with a crackdown and several dozen leaders of the strike were arrested. Ayuk Tabe, who announced he was the new president of the created English-speaking Republic of Ambazonia, was arrested in Nigeria in December with 47 of his collaborators and extradited to Cameroon. Armed groups and his supporters have been calling for their immediate and unconditional release before schools can reopen. But the injunction is felt mostly in English-speaking villages where armed men attack and escape to the bushes before the military arrives. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. 17.45 Central African Time, your economics. Now, here's Usani Matabula. Good evening, thanks. As Pumelele, we start with MTN, where Africa's biggest mobile operator has lost its latest battle with a rival Vodacom over a transnet contract. The contract in question was over 24 million US dollars and was for the supply of voice and data services to transnet. MTN was disqualified from the bid, allegedly after writing their pricing schedules in a different way from the manner required by transnet in the tender process. Hilda Kassa reports. MTN had approached the South Gauteng High Court to challenge Vodacom's contract with Transnet, saying that the awarding of the contract was flawed and a breach of an agreement that MTN had with Transnet. The court found that the process of awarding Vodacom the contract was validly concluded. MTN has not indicated if they will challenge the court's ruling. Hilda Gasa, ACBC News, Johannesburg. 
and union said the South African Power Utility ESCOM are to consult with their members on the utility's latest wage offer. ESCOM has revised its wage offer to employees from no increase to a 4.7% increase for 2018-2019 after first offering 4% at today's wage talks. South Africa has been suffering power outages, which ESCOM has blamed partly on protest action by unions NUM and NUMSA late last week. NUM Chief Negotiator Helen Diatile. We were surprised by the four that they are proposing and everything else is saying we need to go and consult. So whatever that we had prepared to bring has changed. So we certainly need to go back to our constituency and speak to our principals. What is disappointing is that ESCOM has said of all the demands that we have put, they are not going to respond. That is really disempowering. Kenya's leading power producer, KenGen, has announced that it's turning to innovation to enhance efficiency and increase productivity as it seeks to roll out power generation projects worth a million U.S. dollars over the next decade. KenGen, which produces more than 70% of the power consumed in the country, says it wants to transform its approach to power generation and at the same time minimize its carbon footprint. Ken Jens Managing Director, Rebecca Miano. This is a seminar where we give our staff an opportunity to bring out innovative ideas to sustain our business because we believe that the world belongs to the people who innovate. Otherwise, you cannot be sustainable. So we are really excited to listen to all those ideas and really looking forward to the winning ideas. And the board has set aside funds to fund all the innovative ideas. The Dow Jones Industrial Index has dropped over 300 points at its opening in New York amidst escalating trade tensions between the United States and China. Sherwin Braspis has more. In what could be developing into a full-scale trade war between the world's two largest economies, United States President Donald Trump's threats to impose tariffs on an additional $200 billion worth of Chinese imports and Beijing's response that it would strike back hard with measures that match the U.S. move in quantity and quality has sent markets spiraling around the world. The rand tumbled earlier, reaching close to 14 to the dollar before a slight retreat. In a note, stifled chief economist Lindsay Piegza warned that escalating trade penalties would impact economic growth negatively. The U.S. initially applied tariffs on $50 billion in Chinese imports when Beijing immediately threatened to retaliate, prompting further threats from Trump to essentially tax an additional $200 billion worth of imports over what the U.S. says are China's unfair trade practices. Sherman Bryceby's SABC News. New York. And South African investment house Breta reported a one-third drop in annual net asset value after writing down to zero last, fe- last uh, November. The value of its uh, British clothing retailer New Look, Braid, which also owns a uh, gym chain Virgin Active and British supermarket Iceland Foods, says its net asset value, 1.95 U rather 1.95 billion US dollars shares in a, a break fell 1.2% to bring losses over the last 2 years to nearly 70%.
We look now at your financial indicators. Uh, the US dollar at uh, 10.3, uh, Botswana Pula 9.92, Zambian Quacha. In BRICS currencies, the dollar is at 3.73 Brazilian Real, 63.33 Russian Ruble, 68.02 Indian Rupee, 6.45 Chinese Yuan, and 13.53 against the South African Rand. Also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. Commodities, gold, $1,283. Platinum, $881 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil is at $74.83 per barrel. That's your economics news for now. Thank you very much for signing. It's now time for Sports News. Here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with the World Cup news. Japan defeated 10 men, Colombia 2-1 in their opening Group H match earlier today, the first time an Asian team has overcome a South American nation at the World Cup. Now, Colombia midfielder Carlos Sanchez was sent off in the third minute for deliberate handball, the second fastest red card in World Cup history. Now, Shinji Kigawa scored the resulting penalty to put Japan 1-0 up in the sixth minute, but Juan Quintero equalized with a low free kick which squeezed over the line shortly before halftime and after the break Japan pressed a tired Colombian side and Yuya Osaka grabbed the winner with a glancing header in the 73rd minute. Well it's currently halftime between the match between Poland as well as uh, Senegal with Senegal leading by a goal to nil. Well, Zamalek have tabled an offer to Kamabeliat in a bid to lure the Zimbabwean away from Mamelodi Sundowns ahead of the expiry of his contract at the end of this month. Now, Beliat, who earlier this month helped Zimbabwe clinch the Kosava Cup title, recently stated that he would like to take the best offer for his services in order to take care of his family. According to reports in Zimbabwe and Egypt, Zamalek has tabled an offer to the talented forward and they are prepared to pay him an annual salary of 450000 dollars now, Kaiser Chiefs as well as, as um, Orlando Pirates are also said to be in the race to sign the 27-year-old player. Well, Supersport have announced, uh, or rather announced earlier today that Nick Mallet as well as Nas Buatha have been cleared of racism allegations by advocate William Malega's report in Ashton Willems's studio walkout that took place on the 19th of May. Now, Supersport Chief Executive Officer Gideon Kobani said the report found that Mallet and Buatha were not racist and they did not exhibit an, any unintended or subtle racism. Kobani also said Willemsa did not take part when the report was being compiled. While we are disappointed that Ashwin did not participate in Advert Malika's review, we respect his right not to do so. And in the spirit of reconciliation, I will make another attempt to reach out to Ashwin for us to find a mutually acceptable way forward so that he knows that this issue has been fairly investigated. Notwithstanding what has happened, one cannot forget that Ashwin reached the peak of international sport while facing very difficult circumstances and he continues to inspire many young people in our country. He represents the aspirations of many and I sincerely hope 
that Ashwin will respond positively. On to matters on the field, Springbok assistant coach Mzwandi Listik says that the South African team will continue their strategy of taking things one game at a time as they prepare to face England in the third test at Newlands Stadium on Saturday in Cape Town. Now, having already clinched the series 2-0, Stick say they will not be changing too much and the main focus remains on winning every game they play, including Saturday's game. Uh, I don't think that it's going to change much from what we want to achieve as a, as a team. I think the main thing for us is to take a, a, every test match one, one, one game at a time. Uh, so the key thing for us is to make sure that we, 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 we progress on what we have achieved so far, which is to get better every day and every time we get an opportunity as a Springbok rugby. I know everyone is talking about us winning the series. I think the main focus, if you understand where we come from as a South African rugby last year, and uh, the, the past couple of seasons, we've been uh, uh, struggling when it comes to results. I think the key thing for us for now is to make sure that we win every game uh, that we play. Uh, so this game, it's, 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 it's a test match. It's a big game for us, more especially playing against England. We know that currently they're going through a couple of tough times. But yeah, our main focus is us as a stream of rugby and to make sure that we get better every day. Well, Stick says as part of the coaching staff, he's pleased with the balance of the team and says it is a good mix of players who have shown a tremendous fighting spirit in the first two tests. I think uh, one thing to me as a coach, if you look at the foundation that we've got as a team, uh, uh, you've got a, a, a good group of guys, with the, which is a mixture of uh, young players which are exciting and energy and also with a couple of experienced players uh, that have been around for a while. So I think we, we've got the foundation and also the way the boys, they are fighting as a team. Uh, you can't take that away from them. Uh, looking at the past two games where we were 21 points down in, at Ellis Park and then the last game we played in, in Bloom, we were also about 12 points down. So they managed to fight back into the team. So I think for us, that's, uh, that's something that is very positive to see that fighting, fighting spirit from the boys. The Zion Sports News and the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It is 17.57 Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. The International Arbitration Court urged to make Africa's participation in its dispute resolution duty attractive. Thousands of children in Cameroon may never again have education as they are caught in the web of fighting between armed separatists and government troops. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Luyanda Mawamete, and co-producer Fisumashiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. You can send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za, tweet us on Channel Africa One, or WhatsApp us plus 2776-300-3327. We leave you with a Trooper by Black Motion and Berita.